You guys can all hear me, so that's good. So that's why the phone moved. People at home could not hear us. So technology never works when we want it to, you know. But it always works when we don't want it to. So, well, turn with me to 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 12 through 19. Hopefully this is better for those of you at home. Hopefully you can hear better now. I apologize that you missed out on some of the singing and couldn't hear. We just can't seem to win with microphones. So, well, last week was fun. Um, I, enjoy, <laughs> I enjoyed preaching from the car. Uh, all the, all the weird looks I got was well worth it. So, uh, we pulled in and there was like not a single person at the rest stop and it got real busy real fast. So it was, it was fun to have people just walk by and like, just, sorry, I can't move. This is going to be really hard. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was weird. <laughs> like just, it was fun anyway. So, um, well, we want to finish up 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. Um, in my Bible, it says suffering as a Christian. Um, I actually wrote, kind of wrote the sermon title, and it should be in your notes that way, or the place where you have a place for notes, is serving in a broken world. Because um, obviously, Peter's whole theme has been suffering. Like, we're going to suffer as Christians. And, and he really lays it out in these, in these seven verses. Like, this is normal. Suffering is normal. Um, but I think we've tried to make it not normal. We've tried to say, oh, if I'm a Christian, everything will work out. Everything will be OK. Uh, I'll have this perfect life. And, and the reality is Peter and John and James and all these guys who wrote the books of the New Testament, Paul said, guys, this is this is normal life. In fact, if you're not suffering, Burl used to tell me, if you're not suffering, you should probably ask the question, why? If your life if your life looks just like the world and you're not suffering for being a, for being a Christian, perhaps you need to ask the question, Why? Is there something that needs to change? That was just a challenge he always gave me when we were serving in West Africa. Um, So I just I titled this serving in a broken world because the reality is we do. Right. The world's broken. We're serving in a broken world like it is broken. The lost act lost. And so we're serving in this broken world. And so what should we expect from that? What should that look like? And that's essentially what Paul or Peter, sorry, not Paul, is telling this church, not just a church, but the, all of Asia. This, remember, this letter was gone, went out to all of the churches in Asia Minor. You know, the Galatians, the Ephesians, all these churches that Paul had started and written to. And these churches that are struggling and they're frustrated under Rome. They're frustrated under the leaders. And, and Peter's like, it's okay. If this is what life looks like, then you're doing something right. Because this is what they did to our Lord. And so this that very first word there in verse 12, it says beloved. It basically marks a new part of the letter. It's, it's kind of like he, he finished up kind of what he was saying. He's wrapping the letter up. He's going to next week. We're going to look at just what it looks like to be leaders in the church, shepherding the flock. But he says beloved. So it marks this new part of a letter. But more importantly, he's letting us know and he's letting the readers know that he, he cares for them. These, these, are, these are Christians that are reading this. These are Christ followers. These are followers of the way, as it would have been called back then. There was no church. It was called the way. Why? Because you lived like Christ. It was the way of Christ. And so the early church was called the way. And so he says, beloved. In other words, Peter knows some of these people. He's done life with some of these people. He cares about some of these people. And he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trails when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's like, don't, don't be surprised. 
Like, like, you know, you can read the Greek and try to make this deeper than what it is or whatever. But the reality is he's simply saying what he's saying. He's like, you are going to face trials. You are going to face tests. They're going to be fiery at times. They're going to be challenging at times. He's like, don't be surprised. Do not be surprised at all when you face these trials as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal. As a Christian, this is normal. You should not be surprised. You should not think something strange is happening. You should not be upset. You should be like, well, here we go again. This is normal. Suffering is normal as Christians. But that is not something that we teach at all in America. We teach that suffering is a bad thing. We shouldn't have suffering and everything needs to be perfect and good. And, and Peter and Paul and James and John and all these guys, you read through the New Testament. They're like, look, if you're going to be a Christ follower, if you're going to live the way, if you're going to live like Christ, you might as well just get used to suffering is normal. It's, it's what happens, right? I love several years ago, there was a, a conversation between Francis Chan and a, and a church leader in the underground church in China. And I mean, he just laid it out like he just blasted Chan. He goes, what do you know about suffering? He goes, you guys go to your big mega churches and you have your coffee and you have your donuts, which we have this morning. So I guess we're like them. Right. And he's like, you sit in comfort. You don't have to worry about anything. He goes, you don't know what it means to suffer for Christ. He goes, and because of that, you're dead. He goes, your churches are dead because you don't have to make a choice. He goes, every single time we come to these churches, we have to decide when we're leaving, when we're going. We have to leave underground. It matters and our lives depend upon it. So for us, this is real. He goes, how do you know what real is? Now, again, I don't know the context of the conversation. I wasn't there. I wasn't in China. I just know what Chan shared um, at the Passion Conference with us. But, but, it, but it shook him. He goes, I, I came back and I was like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And, and it, I, I, I remember him just sharing this. This was like in 2011, 2012. I can't remember which January it was. But he shared this with, with the whole group of passions, so the 50,000 college students. And he goes, right then and there, I knew I needed to change my life. And so he came home and they, they purged. Like They decided they were going to live on $50,000 a year. And anything beyond that was going to missions, was going to something else. He's like, I don't care that we live in Simi Valley, California. We're going to live on $50,000 a year and we're going to make it work. They got rid of their massive cars. They're, he goes, we got little cars. We got mopeds. He goes, we live in California. Why, why do I need a car with a roof? It never rains here. We've had a drought for three years, right? Simi Valley doesn't get a lot of rain. He's like, we got a moped. We got one family car. We got, we had five cars. He goes, why do we need five cars? We got, and he just, he just went through these things. He goes, and eventually he left his mega church and started doing home churches and house churches. He's like, he goes, that conversation shook me. He goes, because I realized I had never fully committed. Even though I'm a Christian, even though I started Cornerstone, even though I started Eternity Bible College, I realized that I had never thought through what it actually means to suffer. He goes, because everything I do is the way that Americans do it. And so no one even questioned me. So anyway, for what it's worth, just throwing that out there. It's just something that literally popped in my head right now. I just, just remembered. But Peter goes, guys, when you, have, when you have trials, when you're being tested, do not be surprised. He says, as though something strange is happening. Verse 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is 
is revealed. So suffering is normal. Suffering is normal for Christians. We shouldn't be surprised. We should expect it. And in fact, when we suffer, we're actually supposed to rejoice. We should rejoice that we're considered disciples of Christ. We should rejoice that the world thinks we're weird. We should rejoice that the world does not accept us. We spend so much time trying to look like the world and be like the world, and yet Peter is reminding us, no, you should actually rejoice that the world thinks you're weird, that they think you're a Jesus freak, that they think you're something else. That's why, you know, a couple months back, we were reading stories every week when we walked through uh, Hebrews 11 and the Heroes of Faith, and we read stories from the Jesus Freak book and the Book of Martyrs. And every single one of those stories, what did those people do? They rejoiced. They're, they're suffering, the end, they're facing the end of their life, they're facing death, they're facing persecution of some sort in every story we read, and yet they're rejoicing because they're like, sweet. We're exactly where we're supposed to be. The world thinks we're weird, the world doesn't understand, and we're going to rejoice. So he says, but rejoice. You're serving in a broken world. The broken world is not going to make sense. The broken world is not going to understand you. So rejoice when they don't. I don't know how many of you saw yesterday or two days ago that Caitlyn Jenner, whatever he was before, I forget his name, Bruce, thank you. Bruce Jenner, who's now Caitlyn Jenner, is now running for governor of California. He announced this huge thing. And he goes, we, or he, she, whatever, we need this. That was a simple, his statement, we need this. We need to bring awareness. We need this. Well, church, are we going to stand up to that? Now, we don't live in California, so we don't have to worry about it. I wouldn't move to California if I was you. Not that any of you want to move to California. But is the church in California going to stand up and say, no, we don't need this? Are they willing to suffer and rejoice in that? And I know we think, oh, that's California, that's California. But guys, it's coming to Missouri. It's already here. Talk to these kids in public schools. It's here. It is here. It is on our doorsteps. Are we willing to stand and go, no, we don't need this because we need Jesus. We're tired of you telling us how to live, world. Are we willing to be united and suffer together? It's a question that only each of us can answer ourselves. He goes on. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, I have been insulted for the name of Christ, as I'm sure many of you has or have. I'm going to tell you what, it did not feel like a blessing. In the moment, it did not. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was like, what just happened? I mean, I have been there. I have sat there here in America and overseas. I've been insulted in both places for the name of Christ. And in the moment, it did not feel like a blessing. Now, afterwards, when I could think about it and calm down and, and process it, I'm like, okay. So ultimately, that person was mad because I'm preaching truth. And I could see the blessing in that. But I'm going to be honest, as a human being, it didn't feel like a blessing in the moment. He says, but if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the, he said, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Just read that again. Because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. 
So if we're insulted for the name of Christ, we're blessed. Why? Because the Spirit rests upon us. God rests upon us. And yet, we have churches in America teaching that there is no Holy Spirit. Well, how can you be blessed by being insulted because the Spirit's upon you if we're teaching that there is no Spirit? He's like, look, the Spirit's resting on you. The glory of God is resting upon you. Rest in that. Now, it's easy to read that. It's easy to say that. It is hard to do. Like, I know that. It is hard to do. It is not fun to be insulted. It's not fun to sit there while people just go at you. Like, I still remember when that happened at the church in West Africa. Like, like I wanted to say something. I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to tell the guy to be quiet, but it wasn't going to accomplish anything. So I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm simply saying, here's what Scripture says. Man, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. The Spirit and God rests upon you. You're different. You're a Jesus freak. You look weird. Whatever term you want to use. Right? So Peter says it's normal. We should rejoice. We should be glad. It's a blessing that's opposite of what the world says. The world says, man, don't stand out. Look like everyone else. Try to blend in. You don't want anyone to pick on you. Just just fly under the radar. Like I said, Burl used to challenge me. If I wasn't being insulted, if I wasn't being picked on, if I wasn't being persecuted, what was I doing wrong? Verse 15, it says, but let none of you suffer as murderers or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Right. So he's like, look, you, you, it's OK to suffer when you look and act like Christ. That's your fruit. When your fruit is coming forward and you're acting like Christ and you're looking like Christ and you're suffering, that's a good thing. We should rejoice in that. He's like, but if you're suffering because you're living like the world, then that's a problem. Don't let any of you suffer as a murderer. Okay, that's easy, right? Murder, like, eh, none of us are going to do that. Or a thief, yeah, that's pretty easy. But then these last two, man, this is where, this is where it gets me. It's easy for me to read this and go, okay, I'm not going to suffer as a murderer. I'm not going to suffer, suffer as a thief. Those are duh for me personally. But an evildoer? What, what's an evildoer? <laughs> an evildoer is anyone that goes against Christ, Right? So we go and look at porn. That's an evildoer. We have idols in our life where it is more important than God. That's an evildoer. We are part of gossip and slander. That's an evildoer. Right? And then the last one, or as a meddler. Well, I've been one of those. (laughs) I mean, I'm guilty of charge. I have been a meddler at times in my life, and I have needed to stay out and shut my mouth. But, but I want to fix it, right? Or I think I know right, or I think I'm smart, or I think I'm the smartest. I mean, I've been a meddler. I'm just admitting it. So I read this verse, and I'm like, okay, let none of you suffer for murder or thief. Great, got that. Then the next two, I'm like, shoot. I can identify with those things. I've been an evildoer. I battle that daily. I've been a meddler. And so I need to make sure that when I'm suffering, for me personally, I'm only talking about Mike because I can only be responsible for Mike ultimately. I need to make sure that I'm suffering. It's for the things of the kingdom. It's the things of Christ. It's for the things I'm sharing, not for these things of the world. And if I'm suffering for the things of the world, well, good, I should. 
Right? We need punishment. There needs to be suffering for the things of this world. But I have to remember that Peter throws in there meddler and evildoer. And at one time in our lives, probably all of us can identify with those things. Right? Because none of us are perfect in the room. So we can't just read this verse and say, well, I'm out. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. Because all of us at least once in our life can probably identify with either evildoer or meddler. Peter threw a wide net. He's like, look, I'm not letting any of you off the hook. If you're a part of this and then you're suffering for it, then get your act together. Repent. You need to be suffering for the right things, not the wrong things. Verse 16. Yet if any of you, anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. And I'll tell you what, I spent far too long of my life being ashamed to be a Christian. I mean, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian school. And I suffered for it in my neighborhood. I suffered for it in my friends. And so I was ashamed. And I did the things of the world. And I partied and I did things I shouldn't have. And I didn't give God the glory because I was ashamed to be a Christian. I was ashamed of the world and how it treated me. Until God woke me up and I realized I don't need to be ashamed. It's okay to be different. It's okay to be a freak. It's okay to be a Christ follower. That's, in fact, what I need to be. But I, for me personally, spent far too long in my life being ashamed. And because of that, I didn't speak up. And because of that, I didn't stand up. And because of that, I didn't step into situations in high school that I should have stepped into, or even as a young adult. And I didn't let God get the glory because the world was getting the glory because people were bullied and picked on. And I didn't necessarily participate, but I just stood by and did absolutely nothing. Because I was ashamed. I didn't want to get picked on. I didn't want to have to sit at that lunch table with that group of people. It was wrong. I knew it was wrong. But instead of doing anything, I did nothing because I wanted to stay with the cool kids and not have to sit at that table. And man, I regret that. I regret that. In fact, one of those really kids that's at this table is now a millionaire. So I probably should have been his friend. That's not why I should have been his friend, but he is an actual millionaire. I'm being serious about that. I mean, those were smart, smart people that were different. But because we defined what cool was, I picked on them. Or I did nothing. I was ashamed. Peter says, let, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Right? If we suffer, we should not be ashamed. And he goes on, he says, look, we are all going to be judged. Everyone. It's time for the judgment to begin. He says, and he reminds us in scriptures, the beginning of the judgment is starting with the household of God. And it begins with us. We are not exempt. We are saved by grace. And because of being saved by grace, we get to spend eternity with God. But we still stand before God for our actions. He's like, look, you're not exempt. You are still accountable for your actions. You will be judged just like everybody else. 
And you will have to hold a cord for what you've done, just like everybody else. You know, your outcome is you're saved and you're saved by grace. So what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? David Platt had a secret church Friday night. I was talking with Chris about it beforehand. If you haven't had a chance to see it, I encourage you to go to Radical.com and catch up or YouTube or whatever. It was called The Great Divide. And one of the things, I didn't, I didn't watch it. I, didn't, I, had, I haven't seen it yet. I, I hope to. But one of the things Chris shared with me this morning that David said, he goes, look, everybody's a missionary. Doesn't matter where you're at, everybody's a missionary. And the reality is we live in a broken world and we live in a broken country. Because if we have people like Caitlyn Jenner standing up and saying, I'm running because you need this, this is not a Christian nation. It hasn't been for a while. There are lost people all around us who do not know the gospel. There are more and more people today in America that have never been into church or heard the Bible at all. Now, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, we couldn't have said that, but you can say it today. It's a common place. You walk, now I don't even talk, I'm not even talking about going to Kansas City or New York or Philadelphia. You walk into Harrisonville and you will find people that have never heard the gospel. Because they relate church with rejection. They've been hurt. They've been hurt along the way and they want nothing to do with it. Right or wrong, it doesn't matter. They don't know the gospel. And he says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It begins with us. What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? Well, we know what the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel. They're going to hell. They're going to spend eternity apart from God. And we know the truth. So first off, why aren't we living like we know the truth? And second off, why are we not telling them? Because we're ashamed, Right? We don't want to make anyone mad. We don't want to upset the apple cart. We don't want to have any strife. We're ashamed. I mean, when we say we can't share, so we're ashamed of Christ? And then we go, no, I'm not ashamed of Christ. Okay, then why aren't we sharing? The whole point of Secret Church last night is everyone's a missionary. And what was the commission? Go and tell people about Christ. We're not without excuse. All of us, if we are a Christian and the Spirit is living in us, we are supposed to be missionaries. We are supposed to be making disciples. Everyone is a part of that journey. Now, in that journey, in the church, there are different leaders and different roles, of course, but everyone is supposed to be doing the same thing. That's why we're the body, right? Fingers, toes, ears, nose, feet, broken toes, all of the above. So if judgment begins with us, but we know we're saved, but we're still going to be accountable. Think of what's going to happen to those who stand before the Lord and say, but I, I, I never knew. I was a good person. I didn't murder anyone. I, I didn't thief, thief, thievery. I wasn't a thief. I lived my life the right way. And God's going to say, yeah, but I never knew you. One of my biggest pet peeves, and you guys know this, but I'm just going to say it again. I am so tired of hearing people in the church saying they were good people. Because without Christ, we are not good people. It is impossible to be a good person without Christ in your life. It is impossible. Scripture says that. 
That's all Ephesians chapter 2. We can't be good without Christ. So you know what? They weren't good people. They lived a life that the world has defined as okay. And they weren't as bad as this person. They weren't a thief. They weren't a murderer. But they were still an evildoer and they were probably still a meddler. Without Christ, you cannot be good. And if we keep telling that lie to ourselves, why in the world would we go out and witness to them? Well, they're good people. I don't need to go tell them about Jesus. They're good people. No, they're not. They desperately need Jesus. Caitlyn Jenner desperately needs Jesus. We don't need to go out there and condemn her. God's already done that. She's going to be a he, she, whatever is going to be accountable to God for her actions. She is already condemned. She is going, he is going to hell. So someone needs to step up and say, dude, you need to know about Jesus. Because I don't care if you're a male or female or what kind of clothes you wear. You're going to hell because you don't know the truth. That's our job, church. It's not to condemn the world. It's already condemned. Our job is to go tell people there's hope, there's peace, there's love, there's truth. We spend too much time condemning people that are already condemned. Why? It makes no sense to me. We condemn an already condemned world and we refuse to tell them the truth. There are people all around us that do not know the truth. I coach a ton of kids I'm constantly just trying to teach them about Jesus because I have no idea what their families believe. No idea. There's so many ways you can plug into the community. Man. There's so many ways. Volunteer at the library. Coach a sports team. Get involved. You know how many of these kids just need to be loved? They don't have a dad. They don't have a mom. They don't have a home life. They just want someone to care about them. So let's plug in and care about him and start teaching him the truth. He goes on, he quotes Proverbs 11.31 here. Verse 18 is Proverbs 11.31. He says, if the righteous are scarcely saved. Now, I want you to know what that word means. It literally does not mean like scarcely. The word in Greek is molas. And it literally means with difficulty. So what the person who wrote Proverbs most likely Solomon is saying, he says, if the righteous are saved with difficulty, well, why would he say that? Well, think about it. How are we saved? We're saved with the man living, coming with God the Father, sending his son to live on earth for 33 years and then having to die on a cross. That's difficult. You give up your son. For a world that continue tells you, we don't need you, we don't want you, and you, you send your son anyway, you know your son is going <coughs> to, excuse me, you know your son is going to die from the moment you send him here, from the moment you created the world. <coughs> you know that your son has to be beaten, ridiculed, spit on, made fun of. That's difficult. So he's saying, look, if the righteous are saved difficultly, and then on top of it, we have to admit that we're worthless, that we need something. We're not righteous until we have Christ. Christ is what makes us righteous. So the first thing we have to do is go, I'm hopeless. I'm worthless. I'm trash. And I need to be saved. 
That's difficulty. So he's saying, look, if the righteous are scarcely saved, if the righteous is saved by molas with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The one that's walking around saying, I don't need this. I'm a good person. Look what I've done. That's why it's so hard to witness the Muslims. Because their whole life is based on good works. And frankly, some of them have better good works than some people in the church in America. I mean, they pray five times a day. They fast. They give alms to the poor. And then you sit there and go, hey, you know what? You need Jesus. They're like, no, I don't. Look at all these things I do. I pray. I fast. I go to, I go to the, the, the temple. I give all this money away to the poor. I'm a good person. I don't need anything. He says, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Guys, we were saved with difficulty. Through what Christ did and through what we have to admit. It's difficult to admit we need Jesus. It's difficult to admit we're sinners. It's difficult to admit we're not good. Like that was the hardest thing for me in my entire life. Growing up in church and growing up in a Christian school, it was so hard to get on my knees and say, God, I am a worthless, miserable wretch and I need you. I didn't want to say that because I had been programmed and trained that I was better that I was good, that I wasn't like that side of town. That was the most difficult thing for me ever to admit, that I was a miserable, wretched sinner that needed Jesus. And frankly, it took me 28 years to really get there and admit that. My first six, seven years in youth ministry, I wasn't even there yet. I was on the journey, but it was when I was 28 that I finally said, Oh my gosh, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. And I, I remember that moment vividly, and then I remember a few years later, and I, I, I should probably share this story before, but I'm going to share it again. Like, I, we were at a camp, we were, our, our church did a retreat in August for the whole church, and we were down there, and we literally just arrived. Like, literally just arrived. The phone rings. I pick it up. Brother, he always called me brother. He said, Brother Mike, said, what's going on, man? My wife just kicked me out. I was like, what? He's like, she found out about my addiction. She found out what's going on. She just kicked me out. I don't know what to do. I was like, well, go to my house. Where are you? I was like, I'm at Camp Hebron. Give me two hours. I'll be right back home. Looked at Karen. I said, I'm out. Dropped off Karen. Dropped off the kids. They got, got them into their room. Got them unpacked. Drove the two hours back. You know what? I didn't want to drive two hours back. I just got there. It was a retreat. I wanted to relax. I wanted to go to the pool. I wanted to chill with my family. But I knew this brother needed me. I called four or five other guys, a couple that I knew had battled with addictions. I said, guys, you need to go to my back porch. My house is locked, but our brother's there. Go now. Arrived in my driveway. There was five of us, included, or six of us total. We sat there. We listened to the story. We prayed. We cried. And I finally just looked at this brother. He goes, why are you not judging me? He's like, why are you even here? Why, why are you not with your family? Why are you loving on me? I am miserable. I'm wretched. I don't deserve this. And I said, exactly. And now you can be free, brother. Now you can actually be saved. I said, because every single one of us on this porch is a wretched, miserable sinner that needs Jesus. And it was like the light bulb went on. And he gave his life to Christ and he was in his 40s on the porch that day, and he has never looked back. 
His marriage has been restored. They do marriage counseling for people. It is an absolute story of redemption. That's what our God does. He redeems the broken trash, but we got to admit that we're broken trash so that we can be redeemed. I was so excited when he said that. And when he talks to me still to this day, he goes, I will never forget when you said every single one of us was wretched and miserable. He goes, I never, I never, it never clicked. I was like, you're a pastor. You can't be bad. I'm like, dude, I'm a human being. I'm bad. I battle the exact same things you battle. Making me a pastor does not make me better. In fact, if anything, it's probably harder because the enemy attacks even more. I don't know if it's really harder or not. Life is hard. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, the reformers and the Anabaptists, they knew this. They understood this. They recognized that they were miserable. They recognized they needed Jesus and they entrusted their souls to a faithful creator. That's why we have the Reformation. That's why we have the church that we have the church today. That's why we're not all Catholic. Because someone was willing to recognize it. Someone was willing to stand up. And it didn't just start with Martin Luther. It started with many people before him. Guys that said, something's not right here. This is not biblical. I don't know what's happening, but we are no longer teaching Scripture. And they entrusted their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's a hard thing to do. To entrust our lives to someone else. Someone that we can't see, someone that we don't understand. I mean, we can see the effects of God, right? We see the effects of the wind, but we, we don't, none of us, to my knowledge, have ever seen God. We don't touch Him, we don't eat with Him, and yet we're supposed to entrust our lives to this faithful creator why we have scriptures right to show us how faithful he is for all of time he's been faithful he created the world he took care of adam he took care of noah he took care of daniel he took care of david he the story goes on and on and on every single prophecy he said about the messiah came true we're just waiting on one more when the messiah returns if nothing else god has proved he is faithful To the beginning of time, it's why he's the Alpha and Omega. It's why we can entrust our souls to something we can't fully see. It's why it's called faith. Because we're putting our faith in a faithful creator who has never let us down, who has never lied, who has never abandoned us, who is always there, who has always loved us, and who has never rejected us no matter what. Because he's a good, good father. I know I was away when that song got, got popular and it got probably way too popular and every church sang it, but for me, I love it. I didn't hear it every Sunday. I know we got back and people were like, oh, I'm so tired of that song. Man, listen to the words. He's a good, good father. That's why we can entrust our souls to him. And when you look at this passage and you look at what it means and you look about the scarcely being saved and you look about the, the suffering and the persecution, I think that's why in Matthew seven thirteen, and I just want to read it to you. We studied the Sermon on the Mount a while ago, but I just want to read this to you again. Matthew seven thirteen. Write it down. If you want to turn there to man, no, I'm not lying to you, feel free. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. But those who enter by it and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. 
and those who find it are few. Jesus himself says on the Sermon on the Mount, look, the easy path, the wide, the wide gate, the wide path, it leads to destruction. It leads to the world. You can go by it, and a lot of people do, but you will not find life. And yet the gate that's narrow and the way that is hard leads to life. And those who find it are few. When you read 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, and you look what it means to be a Christian, you look what we're going to go through. Yeah, that's going to be a hard road. But the hard road leads to life. And that's why it baffles me that we continue to teach this prosperity gospel that if you do obey God, everything will work out. I mean, technically that's right. Because if you obey God and you're in heaven, everything does work out. But all throughout scriptures, it's pretty clear that our life will be hard. Jesus himself says the way is hard that leads to life. He says, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. You're not always going to have a place to sleep. Never once did Jesus say, following me is easy. Never once. And if you find a verse in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that says that, please show it to me. Because I'm still looking. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. That's a huge phrase. According to God's will. If we're suffering according to God's will, then entrust our souls to the faithful creator while doing good. He's a faithful creator. We must put our trust in him. He's taking care of creation. He takes care of the stars. He takes care of the tide. He takes care of the animals. He takes care of the planting and the seasons. He takes care of the rain. He takes care of the snow. He takes care of us. As I was writing, finishing this up Friday afternoon, and I I just thought about that, him being a faithful creator, that good, good father, You know, so many times we try to imagine what heaven's like or we write things. Honestly, I can only imagine what it would be like. Right? When we stand in his presence and we see him for who he is, his faithful father, I can actually only imagine what that would be like. I don't think it would be like anything we think. I think we're going to be blown away by how good he really is. I can only imagine what that day will be like. Lord, I just thank you for this encouragement. I thank you for these words. I thank you for First Peter. God, I thank, thank you that you're a faithful creator, a faithful father. God, that you care about our souls. You care about us being redeemed and one with you. Not so we can spend 60, 70, 80 years, but so we can spend eternity eternity with you. Lord, and this this road is going to be tough. As we continue to live in this world, it's going to get tougher. And we need each other. We need each other. God, help us to be faithful with what you've entrusted us with. God, help us to stand firm when we face persecution. God, help us to entrust our lives to you, our souls to you. And help us to truly know that you are a good, good father. In your name we pray. Amen.